Welcome to another episode of the WBT. I'm your host, Adrian Bonnenberger. Today, I'm talking with David Phillips, New York Times staff writer, Pulitzer Prize winner, and author of Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals, an extraordinarily moving and impactful book about leadership and choosing good or discipline over evil and a very sinister and cynical form of evil. Uh, David, thanks for joining the show. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about it. Thanks. My first question for you is, would you like to give an overview, a synopsis of the book for folks who might be just generally aware of the Gallagher trial and what your book does that's a little bit different from just looking at the trial? Well, that's right. I'm glad you said that. So this is, is kind of a murder mystery, but it ain't a whodunit because it would be the worst whodunit ever in history. Uh, just to give you a sense of, of how bad it would have been, here's a guy, our main character, Edward Gallagher, a decorated Navy SEAL chief. Before he leaves for a classified uh, mission in uh, Mosul, Iraq to fight ISIS, he texts one of his friends who makes custom knives and says, I'm gonna take my knife and, and put it in someone's skull. And his friend says, sweet. And then like a month later, three SEALs you know, later say they, they see him, eyewitness him, put this knife into the ISIS fighter's neck, a POW, by the way, this isn't on the battlefield, this is a captive. And then afterwards he gathers his men around and they take a photo together. And then he texts that photo to a couple of his SEAL friends saying effectively, hey, I did it. So like in terms of a mystery, it's, it's not Sherlock Holmes. It's not even murder she wrote. And so for me, the compelling story was, okay, what if you're one of the young SEALs who now has to do something about this? And how does that work in an organization that prizes both secrecy, its glowing reputation with the American public, and this really intense kind of brotherhood and loyalty that I think that few of us have ever experienced. Certainly I have never as a civilian. And how do these guys navigate it? One thing that really stuck with me is, it's not so much a murder mystery as it is like a noir, where there is a murder and you're going to wind through how that all unfolds, but who did it isn't necessarily the point. Uh, nor is the actual killing. It's it's how the search for justice reveals sort of more layers of corruption around it and, and how the character, you know, whether it's Sam Spade or someone else, in this case, it's a, a couple of young SEALs in their 20s, how that is revealed to them in, in, you know, various unexpected twists and turns. For me, that was really interesting. It's not a story about Edward Gallagher, even though he's on the cover. It's really the story of a young group of guys who made up Alpha Platoon and what they had to do when what they saw as right and what their culture saw as right weren't the same thing. Yeah, that really, well, if that was your, uh, the thing that was most interesting to you, it certainly came across uh, in, in the reading because it reminded me of some of my favorite literary works, especially Russian literature that oh. tends to, to save the biggest punches to the end and, and not bad punches either, just sort of revelations. And you get to the end and the people who, go th who have gone through this process of being exposed to the challenge or the problem of Eddie Gallagher, the people who sort of make the wrong choice in the platoon are all sort of, can, you can tell through the writing that they feel bad about it and they keep trying to sort of like reach out to the others. And then the others have kind of moved on with their lives and they realize that they made the right choice. And, and it doesn't matter that like they weren't rewarded 
or that Gallagher wasn't punished the way that they were hoping. Um, as, as you said, you know, these, these things, we, we know these things. We know that Gallagher got sort of famously pardoned before the trial by, by Donald Trump. But the, it was the going through it and the facing themselves and saying, no, I'm not going to be the type of person who, who does this type of thing, which, which to, to get back to that second part of, of Alpha's title, the war for the soul of the Navy SEALs. And I'm jumping around a little bit in the questions that I have for you, but what's your feeling now having uh, written the book? Wh where, where does the war stand? So let me spell this out a little bit for people who haven't cracked open the book. There's within the SEALs, there are competing cultures. One of them, is, and I think this is a very natural thing that could develop in, in any warrior culture. One of them looks at two things, expediency and loyalty. Essentially, if we're fighting a group of ununiformed, undisciplined guerrillas who have no rules of engagement, who have no law of war, and they're going to be doing terrible things, well, we should be too. And in fact, like using their same tools of terror, whether that's mutilation or, or you know, purposeful killing, that could be a real strategy to us. And we should be able to do that. And the people that don't let us do that are naive pencil pushers, armchair generals who, who don't know what the fuck's going on and screw them. So since none of those people understand us, we've got to have each other's back. And so if I do something that's a little dirty, it's for your benefit, you know, other fellow SEALs, and you've got to stand by me and keep silent. One of the interesting dynamics of that thinking is that it is self-perpetuating because as soon as you do something dirty, even if you uh, see someone else do something dirty, there's compromise. There's no way that, that they know that, that you can't stand up and say anything. And so there's a culture of sort of mutually assured dis destruction amongst this brotherhood. And let me be clear, it's, it's a subculture. I don't think that it's the majority of SEALs, but it's certainly a strong current in their culture and one that's been around for years. And the other side is people who see that type of acting as really short-sighted. People who say, wait a minute, if we do the exact same stuff as the Taliban or as ISIS, you know, if we uh, violate the very laws that we're supposed to be like upholding and defending, what are we doing? We're no longer at that point actually like SEALs. We're, we're uh, a criminal gang. And as you can imagine, because war is hard, and morality is hard and friendship can be tricky that there's a spectrum of people in between in the seals that are not quite fully pirate you know the the essentially the bad guys and not quite fully boy scout you know that they may have to navigate a tricky field of morality as it comes and so that struggle is over all those people in the middle you know like what do you how do you create a force that is both effective uh, can be loyal to itself and yet, you know, operates with some transparency, you know, as much as possible and, and within the rule of law. That's the struggle. And, and Eddie Gallagher really personifies how that pirate culture can really put the rule of law back on its heels. You do a really uh, fantastic job uh, pretty early in the book talking about both the, the roots of the seals in World War II uh, and then Vietnam, where you start to see things going off the rails. Uh, and then into, you know, th through this Cold War lacuna, 
where this, the pirate mentality that was allowed to stand up during Vietnam, a famously unprofessional war, uh, officers and arbiters of law and order of rules and order were often killed by their subordinates rather than go out on missions. When Eddie Gallagher was a, was accused of, of killing this prisoner of war, there was no reason to kill this guy. He was um, not a threat. He was a pretty pathetic you know, wounded 17-year-old who had no information, had not done anything to harm the SEALs. So there wasn't even like a sense of like, oh, payback against this guy who hurt one of our own or something like that. And Eddie Gallagher killed him in in a, a very specific way. He killed him up close with a knife. And then he took a picture of himself with the body and the knife so that he could tell all the other SEALs that this is what he'd done. And so that to me seemed very significant because it wasn't an emotional response. It wasn't done out of anger. It wasn't tactical. It was cultural. It was that he wanted to say he'd done it. You know, it's, it's like a bunch of like freshmen, like stealing a girl's underpants and showing it to their friends. There was importance in that he was badass enough to get close and kill somebody with a knife. And that would have cultural resonance back home. And so I wanted to know, okay, he didn't come up with that on his own. Like he had to learn that somewhere. Someone brought him up in that culture and I wanted to get it. And so basically I went back to the beginning and the beginning for the SEALs is the frogmen of, of World War II. Their mission was really different. They weren't commandos. They were essentially the guys who, before we landed at Normandy or before we landed at uh, Iwo Jima or someplace like that, you had to make sure that those landing craft could actually get to shore. And so someone had to go in and measure, it's amazing they did it, but take string and measure how deep this is and clear mines and clear any other obstacles out of the way so the boats could actually come in. And they did that by essentially putting on swim trunks, going over the side of the boat and swimming in with essentially just a mask you know, like you would in, in like the neighborhood pool and doing this work and then swimming back. So they created a culture of people who were extremely physically fit because they had to do all this stuff, you know, swimming and who were a little nuts because they had to be the guys who would voluntarily leave the boat, leave the, the safety of a destroyer and go over the side and swim to enemy shores. That's a tough mission. And these guys, they they because they had this really insane job skill, they created kind of an insane culture that didn't pay attention to the typical military discipline or, or uh, deference to rank or any of that. They didn't need to because they weren't really combatants. You know, they were essentially doing a job. Uh, and so the command and control wasn't necessary. But that culture that they, they created then was carried forward even when they were turned into uh, an unconventional warfare group in the, in the early 1960s and sent to Vietnam. And so when you get a bunch of guys who don't care about military regulations, uniforms, you know, traditional discipline or rank structure, and you give them the best guns and, and a very ambiguous mission, which is find the enemy. But by the way, we don't know who they are. You don't speak the language. They don't wear a uniform. Uh, good luck. You know, what inevitably happens is it's sort of a Lord of the Flies situation where they just end up seeing everyone as the enemy. And convincing themselves that if you kill them in the most awful ways possible and leave them there in the village, it'll send a message. So, so that type of stuff happened and further created this culture where amongst some people, and I'm not saying amongst all, likely not even most, if you were willing to do that kind of stuff, if you were willing to, uh, you know, murder the village elder and, and leave him in the middle of the village with his throat slit and his face painted green, 
that was seen as like really badass. And amongst these group of guys that were all, you know, kind of in competition to be badass as, as guys are loath to do, you know, that became credibility, that became stature, that type of killing. And in ways and at different levels, that type of thinking and that type of culture carried over into today's SEALs. Understanding that past, understanding how it developed was really important to me to understanding like how Eddie Gallagher became who he was. Because when he joined the Navy, he wasn't a murderer. Uh, he was a screw up, but lots of people who, who sign up to enlist when they're 19 are screw ups and they don't all get court-martialed for multiple potential killings. So it was important for me to connect the dots. And, and I think there is some evidence that he got in with a, a, a small group of dudes, you know, a, a, a team that was in Afghanistan a couple of times who thought that killing was pretty sweet and probably granted credibility to each other in terms of like how many people you killed and who you killed. And so when he went to uh, Iraq, he saw it as a big chance, you know, a way to, to rack up some stature. Uh, and what his, his men say is that he essentially immediately neglected his leadership duties and, and spent most of his time behind a sniper rifle, shooting it at, as they described it to authorities, like pretty much anything that he could. The first thing that I think will really surprise readers, it surprised me, and I thought I was familiar with the details of Eddie Gallagher's case, is that the murder of the POW for which he was tried and acquitted was really just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Uh, Gallagher was truly despised by almost all of the subordinate leaders for a litany of crimes ranging from petty thievery to shooting civilians. And he seems to have done bad things most of the time he was deployed. But as you say, that type of behavior was celebrated. I keep seeing that, that conflict, the, the way you write it out, the way you, you show that it's not just this one thing, it's almost a mentality. And there's one part where you, you, you write that people can hear him um, screaming in his sleep was very, uh, very powerful. Gallagher himself hasn't remarked on the book. He didn't give you any quotes for the book. He didn't, he refused interviews, but I don't think it's, it's essentially an unsympathetic portrayal of him. I, he probably wouldn't appreciate it in the sense that it sort of takes, I don't know, it psychoanalyzes him. Um, so it's interesting you yeah. say that. I'm sure he, I doubt he's read the book, but I'm sure people around him have and have told me a little, told him a little bit about it. And I'm sure that he despises me. So anyway, he doesn't like me. But it's interesting that you say that it's, it's a not unsympathetic view of him because I think to a certain extent, he's a victim of in this and, and we don't know, was he conditioned by this, this toxic culture? Was he a victim of repeated deployments where he may be carrying around some traumatic brain injury and some post-traumatic stress disorder that, that like so many people, uh, he downplayed even though it was really affecting him? We don't know. Now, I wanna be clear, like there are all sorts of people that have done tons of deployments and uh, have seen a lot worse than Eddie Gallagher has and never murdered a captive. So there's there's more to it than that. And I certainly wouldn't wanna have dinner with him. I, I don't think he's a decent guy, but to to what extent he's a victim of his circumstances, I think that's a, that's a really good point. We don't know, and I think it's fair to say, I don't know if he knows. He's, he's just not a guy who is very good, I think, at self-reflection. If, if he was, he might've like spotted how strange his thinking had gotten. The drug abuse too is another thing that really jumps out where, and, and again, this is something that like anybody who's, who's spent time in the military, the first time you write about how his soldiers perceived him as stealing their food, stealing from them. I mean, that's, 
you know, it's not uncommon for this type of thing to happen. And this type of person is always by definition despised. Being a chow thief is the lowest of the low. And yet there was a kind of rationalization he had for it. More than one person from the platoon told me, you know, if Eddie had only killed that captive, if that's all it had been, I don't know if we had, would have turned him in. And when they tell me that, you can see them sort of being uncomfortable with saying it because like they're witnessing a cold-blooded murder. And yet this guy was a combatant. It was on the battlefield. Yes, he was a captive. And yes, none of them would have done it, but would it have been enough to fry this guy? And they all were like, not all of them, but several of them said to me like, I don't know. I don't know if we would have. But it was the totality of stuff. It was that Eddie Gallagher was completely tactically incompetent in their telling. That because of that, he, for no purpose at all, put people's lives at risk and, and got one of their, their platoon mates shot. That when he did get that person shot, he, he refused to call in a medevac that he was stealing from them, that he had written himself up for medals that, that they say were for things that never occurred or worse, that other people had done. And that they knew like Eddie Gallagher's gonna go back and tell a bunch of stories about how great he is. It's gonna get him promoted. And instead of leading 20 seals next time, he'll be in charge of 60 seals. And like, this is a cancer that we have to cut out. None of us wanna cut it out. Cutting it out is gonna hurt bad but we've got to cut it out before it gets worse. One of the most moving parts of the book, in my estimation, is the courtroom trial, which famously doesn't turn out well for Gallagher's accusers, and turns out very well for Gallagher, uh, better than he had hoped. The writing is exceptional at drawing the reader along slowly, presenting evidence surprisingly, but not shockingly. It's almost as though you were building a case in writing the book, I just wanted to know if that was in the back of your mind at some point, if going through the courtroom case itself, you realized that there was this profound miscarriage of justice. Well, and that's, that's what I hope was a cool thing about the book is that by the time the reader gets to the trial, they pretty much, you know, they know a lot of the evidence. They know what's going to be presented here. They have their decisions they've made about Eddie Gallagher and what he did. And then they see the trial unfold. And I'm sure, I don't know if this was your experience, but they're reading it like, are you kidding me? That's not supposed to happen. Like, wait, what about this? What about this? And I'm sure it's, it's uh, maddening. And the, so the voice of the reader in this book is, is a Navy captain named Matt Rosenblum. And Matt Rosenblum is just like the reader, is watching this from the sidelines, unable to reach in and do anything about it, but knowing what happened. And he, it just like drives him crazy. And he just wants to like, you know, show everybody his text messages. Uh, just like the reader can't reach into the, the trial and say, wait, wait, don't you guys see what's actually going on? I don't want to, to ruin it too much because I think it is fun. But like anyone who saw this in the news knows that Eddie Gallagher was not convicted of murder. He wasn't convicted of attempted murder. He wasn't convicted of any lesser charge of like aggravated assault or anything like that. He was convicted of appearing in a photo with a dead body, the body of the dead prisoner of war that his men say he killed. He walked away a free man that day. He'd already, he'd essentially was punished by being given time served and a small fine. That was shocking to the, the folks that came forward because it was really difficult to go against their culture. Their culture is one where loyalty 
is, is sort of the bedrock. And one of them explained that to me by saying, you know, loyalty is really good because it'll help you pull someone out of a burning helicopter and not think about yourself. But it can also be really toxic because it means that you don't rat no matter what. And these guys, they realized that they had to sort of choose between loyalties. Were they gonna be loyal to this brotherhood, to their leader, to a man who served beside them? Or were they gonna to try to be loyal to something that was much more abstract, doing the right thing? And both came with serious costs. You know, if you quote unquote do the right thing and turn in Eddie Gallagher, well then you're a rat. And it, it may cost you your career. Uh, it certainly cost them a lot of friendships. Uh, it cost a lot of these guys their, their mental health but I think they felt that they had no choice. And so for them to have gone through that sacrifice and see this trial fall apart through sort of a death of a thousand cuts, like it wasn't one thing that went wrong. It was like 10 things or 12 things all compounded, all that like snowballed into this giant shit avalanche that eventually led to Eddie Gallagher being acquitted. That was devastating to them. It's a story that is surprising, both in the way that it's written and in the way that the dots are connected uh, in, in the telling, as is the case with all good stories. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, which sort of came out of the blue for me, something that's definitely a reveal in the book, is this strange character, this, this person who has like a tenuous relationship with the law, Brian Ferguson. But like, where, where does he come from? How did, how did that happen? It's so odd. Yeah, so like if you were writing this story as a novel, he would not exist because he's this coyote of a character uh, who wanders in in the third act and upends a lot. Uh, and and it's unclear why, you know, like, like all coyotes, he's both malevolent and benevolent and you're not sure what is driving him. So who is he? He is a lawyer. He's actually a Navy, or sorry, an Air Force reservist, although he was just there as a civilian, who... I don't know if this is fair, but I kind of got the sense he was a little bit of a SEAL fanboy. He liked hanging around with SEALs. He thought they were cool. And and look, a lot of these guys are charming, gregarious, fun people. I don't blame him. And he got sort of a, a side gig, a hobby, pretty much, representing guys pro bono when they got into trouble. Not big trouble, like murder trial trouble, just little trouble, like like maybe they're facing some, some command order discipline or, or something like that. And he got known around Coronado, where the SEAL base is, as, as a guy to go to when things got bad. When this platoon you know, turned in their chief for murder, he became a guy that a lot of guys turned to, like, what do I do now? NCIS wants to talk to me, what should I do? And, and his response to all of them, and he ended up representing something like half of the platoon for free, was say nothing. Don't talk to the cops. I will handle all of this. We're, we're basically not gonna say a, another word. Just keep quiet because all of you are gonna go down in this thing. You know, this may be about Eddie, but this, this flaming ship is gonna suck everybody down. So the best you can do is just like shut up and do nothing. And the guys who had already talked, he tried to minimize stuff. And he orchestrated immunity for a number of key witnesses who had witnessed Eddie Gallagher, they say, stick a knife into this captive. And that was really important because then they could get up on the stand and say things like, Eddie Gallagher didn't kill uh, this captive, I did. And they're completely protected. No one can prosecute them even though they have admitted to a murder. And at the climax of the trial, that's what happened. One of these guys, a guy who who others thought had been you know, fully 
on the side of the people who wanted to turn Eddie in, a, a guy who everyone said hated Eddie. Suddenly, and, and without any explanation that anyone really understands, but, but with the help of this guy, Brian Ferguson, says, I killed him, not Eddie. And the whole trial falls apart. Here's what's interesting about Brian Ferguson. I'm sure you've heard the, the case of the Marine Lieutenant Colonel who went on Twitter and, and said, this is a travesty, what happened in, in Kabul, and uh, called out leaders for being lousy at their jobs and got in trouble for it. And he got court-martialed for it. And uh, he went in and pled guilty to it recently. Standing right there next to him when he walked in and walked out of the courtroom was Brian Ferguson. Uh, who is not his lawyer, not representing him, but is more of sort of a consulary in this in this situation. And uh, right next to them is Eddie Gallagher's lawyer, Tim Parlatore. And so those guys are kind of creating a, a, a niche for themselves in in dealing with these cases that are, are both like clear misconduct, but also like politically really explosive. Conservative media ate, ate that story up. And I think he raised like $2 million through Eddie Gallagher's nonprofit because he had such widespread support. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see Brian Ferguson again uh, the next time one of these strange trials that, that's catnip for Fox News shows up. I love the way that you described it just then, the way he comes in and, and, and plays this incredibly consequential role in the story and seems to have this kind of instinct for it. The, the Marine Lieutenant Colonel, whose name also eludes me, and I'm, I'm grateful. Is for it Scheller? I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. Um, would have actually profited from Ferguson's advice early on, which is to shut up and say nothing. Like if, if only yeah. Ferguson had gotten to him earlier, it might have, he, he might still have a career. Um, he right. kept talking. Yeah. <laughs> One of the real interesting things about writing nonfiction is like, look, I work hard to make it read like a novel and I think I did a decent job, but like life ain't a novel and there's lots of ambiguous characters. Even the heroes, a lot of times like don't do the right thing, you know, and that's both like fascinating and frustrating when you're trying to put a story together. So this book's been optioned for a uh, limited series like an, uh, you know, Netflix or it's not Netflix, but whomever, whatever streaming series. Uh, and there's a, a screenwriter who's, who's working on it. And I know he's going to be so frustrated with like all these consequential characters that aren't there at the beginning, you know, that are completely may not even know each other. And then they run into each other. It's like a, uh, murder mystery meets like Forrest Gump type of situation. If there is a thing that kind of unites the characters and purpose apart from just sort of the, the vicissitudes of, of fate, there is that, we, that weird Trump phenomenon, that kind of, uh, that coming together mm -hmm. of, of strange personalities. And that's a total sort of sidebar, but in you That's don't, a really good point. Right, I mean, you do a great job of kind of keeping that off to the side, but I mean, he was a uh, uh, Gallagher himself was like on the Trump train from the beginning, which is not a, a totally common thing. I mean, yeah. there, there weren't a ton of people there from from the from the real get go. And there is this kind of like signal that Trump sense seems to send out to different types, like ostensibly different personalities, a libertarian here, uh, a formerly avowed socialist over here, uh, a white nationalist over here. And they all come together and they agree about certain very strange things. I think Eddie loved him just because he said pretty clearly, I, I'm, I'm gonna kick some ISIS ass. Let's take the gloves off. We gotta do worse to them than they do to us. 
you know, and from Eddie's perspective, I think that's, you know, what he wanted to hear. You know, I think under Obama, I don't think he liked Obama for many, many reasons. But under Obama, the, the rules were tight and taken seriously. And guys like Eddie were stayed on the sidelines a lot. And I, I think that pissed him off. So, but you're right. Like so many different people came together that seemed to have nothing in common except that, that like they were going to champion this guy because it was part of the, like the, I don't know, just the like conservative zeitgeist. It was amazing to watch because I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't watch a lot of, of cable of, of any, any stripe cable news. But like just how they could, they had his family on repeatedly and his family was allowed to tell Eddie's story and talk about what a hero he was and a model seal and essentially people were out to get him. And it was essentially, you know, they knew that the president watched Fox and Friends daily and they often talked through Fox and Friends directly to him, you know, as if they were doing a Ron Popeil type of infomercial for Eddie Gallagher, you know, and there was never any pushback. There was never any alternative view they never had anyone who actually by the way knew what was going on because remember his wife wasn't there she has no idea if he's guilty or not but they just let him go and then after they were done they thanked him and said they hoped for the best and it was like it was like we were living in this bizarro world where where i mean i guess fox is like that a lot but where like you know can't you even see what you're doing like none of us know what happened here especially at that point you're letting this woman come on here who knows nothing you might as well let me come on there and talk. I know more than she does. And then you're you're like putting an American flag behind you as you talk about what a hero this guy is and the president really needs to do something. It was crazy to watch. Especially for me as a journalism nerd who like expects standards. <laughs> like I'm like, why are you crazy? Why are you letting this happen? No matter yeah. your viewpoint, like this isn't news. Let's say, let's say Eddie Gallagher lies to her. Right, it's like, sweetie, and let me tell you, he's a charismatic and believable, likable guy. Certainly had plenty of practice telling people non-truths. So he says, sweetie, this is all made up. This is just, it never happened, you know me, I would never do this kind of stuff, doesn't even make any sense. And she believes him, and why wouldn't she believe him? They share a bed, uh, he is her livelihood. Even if she doesn't make a conscious decision, there's so much in her unconscious that would just allow her to be in denial. Look, there are lots of people who like ignore the glaring facts in their life and go go about things in a way that doesn't make sense, right? So I don't know, I have no idea. She may have known he was guilty and decided that she was going to argue that he wasn't, or she may have actually truly believed that he was innocent and, and gone out there and said, you know what, I'm gonna stick up for my man. Uh, I don't know what it is. And I don't put too much blame on her. I think she was brilliant in how she did it. I put more blame on the professionals who at least pretend to be journalists when they go on TV and, and dress up like one and then just allow this to happen without, you know, applying any standards. Fortunately, there is still space with book writing and history making. The, the thing was done. Gallagher was, uh, was, again, famously, you know, or infamously let off, along with Clint Lawrence was pardoned. And, uh, and you, Jeff Goldstein. You actually said something... That was another thing that was sort of a weird coincidence in the book, which is that Gallagher, Goylston uh, was the one who actually yanked Gallagher out for a possible war crime. Probably. We know that Goldstein was in Afghanistan doing a major operation and a SEAL was there with him. And that SEAL shot someone for no reason. And they very quickly removed that SEAL from the mission and told him to never come back. 
and I talked to eyewitnesses, they're all consistent. Their physical cons description of Eddie and their description of the SEAL's personality are all consistent with the SEAL. We can't say for certain that it was him, but, but they believe that it is likely. So, so right, when this happens, the, the officer in charge is Matt Colstein. Uh, he can probably say, but has not, uh, whether it was Ed Edward Gallagher or not. But the funny thing was just that I learned this and then both those guys are on the same pardon list, essentially, and, and both being congratulated um, by Fox when it happens. And none of them ever breathed a word about any of it. But, but what was telling is they also never appeared together on Fox or any other conservative news or with the president together, which the president asked them to do. Whatever happened between those two dudes, they do not like each other and they do not want to be in the same room, it appears. There's a kind of, I don't know, hope. Hope is maybe the wrong word there, but the, is, isn't ultimately the, the, the problem with uh, pirate mentality and renegade rebel mentality where you, you go around doing what you want uh, free from consequence, that eventually you run into somebody whose interests are not aligned with your own, but is on the same team and attempting to do the same things. Like that's that's why we have honor codes. It's, it's, it's to prevent individuals from sort of doing that. And then you get to see, oh yeah, the reason it doesn't work out is because when these two types of the same type of person, and I'm not saying that Guelson is, I, I, there isn't enough of them in the book for me to say. In, in the book, you mentioned that the crime that he stood accused of was very different from the crime that Gallagher stood accused of, which was killing a person that he believed to be an IED man. Yeah, and it's much more of what the what Fox repeatedly presented Gallagher being accused of, which is like, hey, you know, in combat, like there's a lot of gray area and sometimes right and wrong get mixed up and like you gotta make a tough call. That's what, what Goldstein is accused of doing. What Gallagher is accused of doing is killing an incapacitated teenage prisoner of war. <laughs> it's a little different. Not, a, not really a tactical gray area there. Right, and taking photos of it and bragging about it. And that was another right. funny thing is that how he, he, he had actually, he, he was incriminated. The only person who had photos of this thing that had happened was, uh, was Gallagher himself. He had told everybody to delete the stuff, but then he kept these photos on his phone. It's, it's almost too precious, you know, that the murderer can't, can't get rid of the evidence. It's too meaningful to them. So like, also, Eddie Gallagher keeps the knife that he allegedly killed this person with uh, on his little uh, coffee table of honor in his man cave at, at home right now, uh, which is pretty crazy. There's a, a really funny moment, one of the few funny moments in the, the book, where NCIS is uh, interviewing one of the snipers and asking him about these crimes and he's describing the knife to him and, and he stops himself and he says, you know, Eddie's a master manipulator, but he's really stupid in a lot of ways. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got that knife, like he's still got it with him sitting right in his, his operations box. And <laughs> sure enough, NCIS goes, gets a warrant, searches his operations box and it's right there. To go back to Wilson, you know, too, Gallagher was turned in by his platoon, which uh, another thing that you do a, a very good job of sort of uh, building the case for why that's consequential for folks who aren't in the military who might think like, oh, the platoon was jealous of him, which is something that you also heard in the, uh, the prosecution or the counter campaign against Lawrence's accusers as well. Like, oh, they were haters. They didn't like the platoon leader. Lawrence came out. He said he's gay. This is why they didn't like me. They were homophobic. No, no, no. To like you were saying earlier, that for a platoon to to turn in its leadership, 
is, is almost unthinkable. Most people who went to war uh, and just people in the military in general see things where they think to themselves, I don't like this, but I'm going to put up with it. You mentioned the Clint Lorenz case, and this is a case where a young platoon leader essentially orders his, his men to shoot some villagers for no reason. They do, and then they report it, and, and he gets court-martialed. What was interesting about that case was that was the first time where uh, Fox and other conservative outlets really like picked up the mantle and like said, like, this is wrong. This guy's being railroaded. Like, it's a travesty of justice. And I was really shocked watching it. And I wrote about the Lawrence case because, you know, I think and maybe this is a simplification, but I think of like conservatives as very much support the troops type of folks. Like, just stand by the boots on the ground, folks. They got a tough job. Just do it. And if their narrative is going to work, the narrative that this guy is innocent and and the guys against testifying against him are lying, they have to hang a whole platoon out to dry. You know, the boots on the ground, troops that we're like talking about supporting, they're basically like calling liars and ruining their lives. And I don't think they realize the emotional toll that it takes on these guys when Fox News calls them a bunch of liars and gay haters and whatever else, when they're actually like decent dudes who tried to do the right thing. Boy, like that makes me angry more than anything else. And they did the same thing and still do the same thing. Everybody who lets Eddie Gallagher come on and tell his story about you know how he was framed by a bunch of liars who were poor performers and cowards, every time he gets to tell that story without any challenge, uh, they are hanging 20 seals out to dry, you know, so that they can let this guy tell his story. And I don't, I don't know if that doesn't occur to them or they don't care or because they're profiting off of it, it doesn't matter, but it has real effects. Their system always falls apart because self-interested and cynical people tend to put themselves before anybody else. And when you get sort of a critical mass of it, that's sort of why, that's why the Trump presidency fell apart ultimately. I tell you, the flip side to that, uh, if I can geek out on newspaper for a little while, is when people do cooperate and you are, I know that like institutions and organizations aren't very cool in, in modern society, but man, like getting to be a member of a 170 year old newspaper where people are working together every day and like support each other and make each other better, like none of us, if you cut us all into just like individuals and gave us each a substack. We're not the New York Times. We need to work together, hold each other accountable, check each other's work, challenge each other, teach each other, like all this stuff that like, you're right, like a healthy organization and we're far from perfect, but I think we're pretty healthy. It enables everyone to be better and a cynical organization of self-interested people, you're right, eventually just dissolves. And so I think that was like, that's the concern of the seals that turned in Eddie, right? It was like, they, they love the seals. They sacrificed for the SEALs. They want the SEALs to be healthy. They want it to be able to bring in new SEALs and make them, you know, like uh, healthy and, and moral operators. And they saw Eddie as like an existential threat to that. The SEALs who stayed, like like Miller, who as of the publishing of the book, you said was, was uh, teaching junior leaders, was in an instructor capacity. There's this movement around the trial that seems very emotion driven, but is also quite sensible to strip Gallagher's trident. And I'm wondering yeah. like what happened to that and not just Gallagher, they were also talking about initiating a trident board for uh, platoon leader, the company commander, neither of whom reported up many repeated right. reports of Gallagher's behavior. Right. Yeah, the SEALs realized, hey, look, 
This guy was, was acquitted of these crimes he was accused of, but we know that there's all sorts of other misconduct that completely independent of it would get him or any other seal fried. So let's do what we would with, with anyone else that we discovered they were abusing drugs or writing fake medals for themselves or any of that. Let's put it in front of a board and that board gets to decide if they take his trident pin. Now, if they take his trident pin, that means essentially he's kicked out of the seals. He's still in the Navy, but it is a, a deep dishonor and pretty much expected that they'll leave the military voluntarily after that. They wanted to do that not just for Eddie, but for the, any of the officers who didn't turn him in. And that, like you said, is three men. The president stopped it. The president stopped it because he felt it was the deep state trying to have another crack at somebody who'd been found innocent. And, you know, the president probably is pretty sensitive to that, right? Because he's getting investigated and reinvestigated all the time. And he can't do anything about that, but he sure as hell can shut down uh, the military doing this kind of crap to, to Eddie. And so he, he reaches in and he says, stop this. Uh, that's kind of a big deal because pretty much since Abraham Lincoln, the president has stayed out of the daily running of the military and the military has stayed out of politics. And that's really important because if either crosses into the other, it's not that it immediately leads to a coup, but it certainly starts to taint that relationship and, and increases danger of a military takeover of our republic. So they just try to stay away from it like it's a, you know, a thousand volt wire. And yet here was the president, you know, reaching deep in and not only doing it, but letting everybody know that he did it and making it political. For better or worse, the Navy hierarchy decided the best thing we can do here, because this is way bigger than Gallagher, is just not fight back. Just like, don't make this a fight over authority. Just let him do it, even though we think it's wrong. And so that's what happened. Eddie Gallagher was allowed to retire with full benefits and, and his trident and move on. And, and the men who around him, the officers were too. Now, so what do we know about them? The company commander is that he, I think, was pretty much sidelined, parked at a desk until he sort of got the message. If he's still in at this date, I think he's planning to get out. The platoon commander, the guy who was probably most immediately implicated in looking the other way, he resigned as soon as, as he learned that Eddie was under investigation. Uh, and he was almost, he was criminally charged, but they dropped the charges after Eddie was acquitted. The third one, a very junior guy, uh, who, who did not immediately report this, but seems to have otherwise done the right thing. He's still in and uh, working his way up through the organization. I think last I heard he was at the Navy War College, although he could be somewhere else at this point. Those symbolic things, they seem so minor. And I remember there was another uh, character, another SEAL, Carl Higby, who's turned into a big uh, sort of pro-Trump conservative blogosphere guy who had his trident taken away. He felt unjustly and then sort of appealed the decision that was under the Obama administration. We, we tend to think these things are, 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 are not particularly important. It's like, oh, whatever, yeah, you know, oh, you got some kind of Boy Scout like patch on your shoulder. Congratulations. It looks like a trident. I think you can go to the BX and get one for like seven bucks. It's not a big deal. Right, right. Having that trident doesn't entitle you to more compensate, more retirement pay. The SEAL leadership wanted to let the rest of the SEALs know, you know what, that jury might have, have let him off, but that doesn't mean shit. Like, we don't think he deserves to be a SEAL. Uh, and the president wasn't having it. That's incredible. It's incredible. And I think that was probably ultimately one of the reasons the book 
kept me up at night is knowing how dysfunctional our government was and, and, and how close we were, we were coming to, you know, really, really old um, traditions fraying uh, because the president felt you know, yeah. he was going to do this or he was right. going to do that and to heck with the rest of it. Yeah. I, and I didn't want to write that kind of book. So Trump is actually very much in the background and thank God he didn't win a, a second uh, term because it would have, I, he would have had to be in the foreground. And I wanted to put the, the little guys in, in the foreground. I didn't want to write a book about dysfunction. I wanted to write a book about some pretty awesome dudes who were just like put deep in the shit and what they did to respond to that. Because I think that's really interesting. And so like, it was a pleasure to uh, try to understand these guys and how how they worked through all this stuff, you know, because, you know, ultimately like this is a pretty extreme example of unconventional warfare where it's, you know, it's not just that you're fighting an ununiformed foe, but you're, you're, you're fighting your own organization, you're, you're fighting all sorts of stuff and they had to keep figuring out how to flank and regroup. And it was really cool to see them, you know, ultimately feel like they were, were gaining some ground. Do you feel that the book has been received the way that you intended when you were writing it? Or do you feel that people have taken uh, other messages from it? What, what has been the, the, the reception that's been most interesting and compelling to you? Uh, it's, so it's cool to see uh, other people take different things from it because it's it's a complex enough story that I think there's wide interpretation. I love that, uh, that people mention stuff that I hadn't even occurred to me, even though I spent years with this material. It's been received really well, both within, I'll, I'll say the NPR crowd, you know, the, the reading crowd, but also also within like the military crowd. This is a story with deep resonance to, to anybody who, who serves or, or has served. And I think they, they generally dig it. Now, are there, people out there who say mean things about me uh, in like conservative Twitter all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, are some of them Eddie's friends? For sure. So like, I'm, there's a lot of haters out there, but I don't think that the guys in Alpha had put together that they actually hadn't lost. When I put that together and they read the book, like they're seals, they're men of few words. They're, one of them called me, he's like, oh man, I just finished it. Tough read, man, but you totally crushed it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. And the, I think it was very healing for them to realize that like they didn't lose, that they actually like come out on top in this, which is a cool thing. Absolutely. The best type of book is a book that leaves you feeling uplifted and, and optimistic about things going forward. And, and it really, uh, really went a long way toward redeeming the SEALs as an organization for me, because I knew a few SEALs here and there personally, great guys, great individuals. I've been lucky to have pretty good people in my orbit, but as an organization from my time in the military, I thought of them mostly as people like or similar to Eddie Gallagher. That's my, that, my, that was my impression of the SEALs. People just in, yeah. in country to drop some bombs. Uh, and, and, and if they were dropping bombs on Taliban, that was great. If they were dropping bombs on civilians, well, they're just future Taliban anyway, you know, so kill them all, let God sort them out. And it was really, you know, dispiriting. And this is the type of seal that I think, you know, I would feel comfortable with my son, you know, serving in, uh, led by people like Miller yeah. um, or, or, or yeah. some of the others. Yeah. Let's hope they stay in, man. The book again, Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. Mm -hmm.